There you go. It is, uh, it is good to see everybody here tonight. Um, uh, we're fortunate to have Thomas Wheeler with us. We're going to be looking at the book of Acts tonight. Uh, we're not going to cover the whole book, though, are we? Is it just going to be one chapter, or are we going to... Uh, yes and yes. Yes and uh, yes and uh, yes and no. <laughs> One chapter and a little bit of overview, too. Uh, very good. And uh, maybe a brother would uh, like to commit our time uh, to the Lord and ask for his help as we uh, uh, study uh, tonight. Did you say which brother? I, any brother. Who oh, any brother. Okay. Father, we thank you again for your word. That we have not only a recording of the history, but a pattern for us to be able to follow, to understand your mind and your will. And we just pray that you open our minds to be able to understand what you have to say this tonight. And we ask for the filling of your Holy Spirit, but Brother Thomas, as he opens up the things that you have studied, that he has studied, and spent time before your face, that you would uh, enable him, empower him, to be able to speak it clearly in such a way that we may understand and that your Holy Spirit will take these words and help them to um, find resting place in our hearts. That the things that are of you will, will remain and bear fruit. We turn to be saved in the name of uh, your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you. Just, okay. I'm sorry, oh, ahead, but just to make sure we understand, uh, uh, informal meeting, and if there are questions, all should feel at liberty to uh, ask a question or put, put forth a question or... Uh, yeah. <laughs> no tomato throwing. Yes, no tomato throwing. <laughs> right. Okay, we're going to primarily focus in Acts chapter 1. But before, let's, uh, let's each, uh, we'll read together. Let's start and go to Luke 24 first. Because we're going to read the, the, uh, what Luke gives us in Luke 24. And then we'll follow right on into Acts 1, right after we finish Luke 24. Okay, so we're each going to read. We'll start... Maybe with Malcolm over here, and each read two verses, and start in Luke 24, verse 36. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and terrified and frighted, and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do you why do you doubt the right Okay, we'll move to the next. Each read two verses. 
two verses each person, right? They can move around. So everybody gets a chance to read. 11 verses of chapter 1 and some of us have already uh, been in the, the first 6 or 7 verses so I'm, I'm going to kind of primarily focus on verse 8 but just to kind of set the, the stage uh, for verse 8 as we're moving towards here just to again as a refresher for, for all of us uh, verses 1 through 3 uh, he is focusing Luke is focusing on demonstrating that the Lord was really alive, his presentation alive, uh, to a limited company though, right, to a limited group of people. If he didn't show himself alive to everybody like he had showed himself before his cross and resurrection, there was a, there was a change, there was a difference. And so 
He's showing himself alive. And the parallel, if you can hold your finger in uh, Acts 1 and Luke 24, because we want to kind of move, come on in, y'all, move back and forth together. It, the parallel that I would see in Luke 24, don't forget that, uh, well, I'll wait, because I've lost everybody here. So in Luke 24, and as we mentioned when we were studying this before at Boulevard, Acts and Luke, or Volume 1 and Volume 2, they work together, written by the same author, and written very close to being probably the same time even. And so we would expect a lot, a close parallel between Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1, and that is in fact what we find. And so the parallel to, to verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1 of Acts would be verses 36 to 43 in Luke 24. Everybody see that? He's presenting himself alive. He's demonstrating that he's he's really alive. That it, it's not just a spirit, not just a ghost, that he's physically resurrected. This is very important to see. Because we may take it for granted that this is a truth that we all understand, but this is something that di- distinguishes Christianity from everyone else, everything else. That, you know, our Savior is physically resurrected. There isn't any other religious leader that can say that. Buddha has not been physically resurrected. None of the Hindu gods have been physically resurrected. In uh, whatever religion you want to put in there, there hasn't been a bodily resurrection. This is what distinguishes And so that's why Luke takes such an effort to make that point clear. But Luke also points out that the Lord used that time 40 days. By the way, Gary uh, Wainwright was telling me that uh, this Sunday will be 50 days after Easter in, in our current year, current calendar. So you kind of picture... 40 days was uh, one day at the end of last week. Uh, was 40 days, and, and 50 days, the celebration of Pentecost, would be like this Sunday coming up, which is kind of neat to think about, to put it in kind of a perspective. You remember Easter this year, where you were, what you were doing. You think about the time span that our Lord is with the disciples. It would be like from Easter this year up till a few days ago, 40 days. He's with them. He's showing that he's demonstrating that he's really in a body, that he's alive, and he's instructing them the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And the parallel in Luke 24, I think, would be verses 44 to 49. These are the words, verse 44, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. Now Luke 24, 44 could be referring to 
the beginning of that 40 days or he could be referring to the end of that 40 days. Have we got everybody? Everybody on board with me so far? It's, it looks like I'm losing everybody. I, I think you're establishing the, the, the importance of the fact that Christ was bodily ri- If he wasn't risen, you know, the apostle would tell us that we are without hope. Right. Right. But because he has risen, we have hope because we serve a risen Savior. If he was dead and in the grave, the wages of sin is death. It would naturally imply that he was a sinner had he not resurrected because he right. had not uh, earned the wage of would be a death. false messiah right. like they claimed that he was right. okay but he also instructed them during that time and this is important to see because many wonder how did the apostles know like in Acts chapter 2 in Acts chapter 3 in Acts chapter 4 in Acts chapter 5 what scripture to use to pertain to the resurrection and the early teaching in the church. Where did they learn that? Well, they learned it from our Lord. And they learned it, I think, largely during this 40-day post-resurrection ministry that Luke is talking about. And I think verses 44 to 49 of Luke 24, Luke is referring to what was as a summary of that entire 40-day period, not just the beginning of it, but very likely at the end of it, because he says he opened their understanding in verse 45 that they might comprehend the scriptures. Well, he didn't just do that the first day, right? He continued to do that throughout the 40-day post-resurrection ministry. He continued to open their understanding that they might comprehend that Joel chapter 2, for instance, that Peter's going to quote as, as a proof text for what they were witnessing at Pentecost. How did... Peter know that. Would you have thought to go to Joel 2.28 to validate the tongues incident that occurs in, in Acts chapter 2? Peter was taught that by the Lord, and he was taught that when the Lord showed him the things concerning himself, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So, so this is important to understand that our Lord was, was teaching them, instructing them, and preparing them. They were going to be the foundation of the church, And he was preparing them for the ministry so that when Pentecost came, Acts chapter 2, the 50th day, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, that that they would immediately be able to move out into the, the work that the Lord had prepared them and called them to do. This is important, too, for another reason. Because sometimes we think, well, you know, I have the Holy Spirit just like the apostles, And maybe I don't need to study the Bible in order to be able to understand it. Maybe I can just put it underneath my pillow at night and the wisdom from the Bible will come up through the duck feathers, right? (laughs) We laugh at that, but but even in the Plymouth Brethren Assemblies for many years in the early 1900s, the men would not prepare for a message. They said, I'm just going to get it as I walk up the aisle. Get up and walk up to the aisle of the platform and the Holy Spirit will give me the words to say at the time like he did the apostles. But but that person doesn't know, I guess, that the Lord gave 40 days of post-resurrection instruction in his glorified body to the apostles and then they continued to study the Bible as is indicated throughout the book of Acts. And so it, it's... 
it's, it can be a mockery of grace, right? To say that, well, I don't have to study because the Lord will give me the words to say that Sunday morning. Some men that take part in pulpit ministry only work on their message on Saturday, the day before. That's not, that's not enough. The saints are worthy of more than that. It's the saints and the Lord who are worthy of this. They're worthy of our sweat. They're worthy of our spending time in the Word because they're taking time out of their schedule to be taught from the Word of God on Sunday morning and we have an obligation to the Lord and to them to spend time, organize, put it orderly in our minds and give them something that will refresh their spirits, refresh their hearts. Isn't the Lord even now continuing that teaching ministry? Isn't He the one that is actually teaching us through the, well, the Holy Spirit, you right. know, the Lord's Spirit, He sends the Spirit, and the Spirit does that, but the Lord too, because He sent the Spirit, right? Right. That's right. But He's using it, so, and, and He's ministering through the person that's teaching, but also He's ministering in the hearts of those that are comparing the teaching with the Scriptures to see if these things be so, right? Like the brilliant. There's a whole dynamic of what the Holy Spirit is doing. So that's what we see in, in Luke 24, verses uh, 44 to 49. And then in Luke 24, 50, to the end of the chapter, we'll look at that in a minute when we come to the, uh, to the ascension. I want to come back now to Acts chapter 1. We spent some time on Sunday night to talk about what the Lord was instructing with for things pertaining to the kingdom of God at the end of verse 3. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. And then we talked about their question with regard to the kingdom being restored to Israel in verse 6 and 7. So for those of you that, that weren't here Sunday night, I think that was taped, I'm not sure. But we, did, we covered that at uh, Boulevard. So we come to verse 8, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You notice the, the word but, the connecting word but at the beginning of verse 8. That's a word of contrast. It's in contrast to what he has just been sharing. Right? They were asking him whether the kingdom was going to be restored to Israel. Verse 6, 7, and 8 go together. By the way, you probably see that. And so, verse 6 and 7 deal with the question, is the kingdom going to be restored to Israel? And he, his response, no, not at this time, basically. The times and seasons are in the Father's hand, but the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. The promises of the Old Testament prophets will be fulfilled. We looked at that already. He says, but in the meantime, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, stop with that phrase first in verse 8. You shall receive power. That word dunamis is the idea of enablement, ability beyond your normal ability. Okay? The Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall receive power. What does that imply about them then? <clears throat> that they lack that power, right? It implies that they lack something for the ministry the Lord had called them to do and call them to to serve. And so they need to receive power. And, of course, he had already said in verse 5 that 
John the Baptist baptized with water, <clears throat> but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this baptism of the Holy Spirit that is the event that occurs in chapter 2 of Acts is very important. There are, there are many uh, ramifications or outworkings that occur because of that event for the church. It's so important. And, uh, and that, those will be seen as you work through the book of Acts. But their primary mission or ministry is in the second half of verse 8, right? You notice that? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. By the way, did they ask for that power? No, God is already saying He's going to do this. He knows they need it. Right. And they're, they're glad to receive it. And, and those of us who have been saved, have we find later, like in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that we have been baptized into the same body. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink of one Spirit. So the moment each one of us was saved, trusted the Lord as our Savior, we too, by the same Holy Spirit, not on Pentecost, right? Because that's a singular, unique event when the church began and the entire group, they were already born-again Christians, but they were baptized into one body that the Bible calls the church or the assembly. Okay? And then each one of us, as we have been born again, we, by the same Spirit, are baptized into that same body. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit as the Bible teaches it. See, we've heard so much since Pentecostalism came in uh, in 1901 and the whole Pentecostal theology flowed out from that, this, this distorted idea of what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. And there's a lot of false teaching about it, but it has caused many genuine Christians to avoid the whole idea of the teaching and the theology of it because they want to stay away from the extremes. But we do want to stay away from extremes that are in error, but we don't want to deny the truth that the Bible itself teaches, right? So there is a baptism in the Holy Spirit, and I believe it's the same baptism that, that Paul describes also in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter chapter 6, he's describing it's a spiritual baptism, not a water baptism. It's a spiritual baptism that occurs the moment of our salvation. The spirit baptism happens whether we have a water baptism or not. We may not get an opportunity to be water baptized. Does that mean we weren't baptized into the body of Christ? No. That occurred the moment we trusted Christ. May I ask something? Could uh, a weak analogy be something like this? For those of us that are American citizens, right? We were not there at uh, July 4th of or 1776 when the Declaration of Independence was signed, you know, creating uh, the country of America. When we're born into, uh, you know, the United States of America, we come into the good of being an American citizen because of what was happened back in July 4th, 1776. 
a weak analogy. It's a similar, yeah. right? We we weren't there at Pentecost. Every every Christian, obviously, right? We weren't there in uh, two thousand years ago. But we come into the uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit. We come into the good of what took place back then in the uh, baptism of the Spirit of that original body. Well. Partly that analogy would work, I would say, but but it's, you take it a step further, it's it's more real than that in the sense that the Holy Spirit literally baptizes us into the body the moment we're saved too, according to First Corinthians right. twelve thirteen. Well, so it's, it's not just the value of we actually are actually placed into that body by the Holy Spirit at the time of morning. Right, but, but I mean, I'm just I guess looking at a one-time event that we weren't a part of, right? We weren't there at Pentecost, and we weren't there. At the de- signing the Declaration of Independence either. Right. But we're coming to the uh, good of, if you will, being of American citizenship by uh, being born. I think I understand the analogy. Basically, the Constitution is evidence of the fact that there was a signing. We have that piece of paper. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. There's yeah, there's, 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 those are witnesses, the Holy Spirit coming and speaking with tongues. That's evidence that the Holy Spirit has, has come. And so we, we're in the good of that. By faith, I know that I'm in the body, not because I spoke in tongues or there were right. things that appeared as... Right. Yeah. So, anyways, I, I, at least that's just the way a, I understand. Yeah, just a, a, a weak analogy that, that maybe we can uh, wrap our minds around up because we weren't there on neither of those, but we come into the good of it. Praise the Lord. Amen. Yeah, we, we come into the good of it. Yeah. Undeserving. Absolutely. And so the second half of verse 8, you, you shall, the first half you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now this, he's, he's speaking of this, verse 8 is not to us, in a sense directly to us, it's to the group, the 120, that he describes later in chapter 1. Romans 6, would, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, would be describing what happens later to us as believers. He, he is addressing this to this specific group, the ones that were there in experienced Pentecost, right? That's where the, the church began. And they, they became one body. And he says, You shall be witnesses to me, or that could be translated, My witnesses. It's possessive pronoun. My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the first thing is witnesses. They are eyewitnesses of what? You shall be my witnesses. They're eyewitnesses of his death. They're eyewitnesses. Well, actually, you could take it back. They're eyewitnesses of his his baptism, perhaps. Maybe some of them were there. But uh, eyewitnesses of his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension that would follow in the next three verses, right? They were eyewitnesses. And i just like to follow that because Luke follows that uh, for a few times after that, really all the way through the book of Acts. But in, in chapter 1, verse 22, Peter says, he, describing the uh, person that's to replace Judas, beginning, this person has to be one that is from the beginning of the baptism of John to that day that he was taken up from, the, from one of those that become a witness with us of his resurrection. Right? So a witness with us, with the with the uh, 11, and then the rest of the, the 120 would be included in that too. And then in chapter 2, verse 32, 
Look at that verse. I'd like you to see these verses with your own eyes so you'd be convinced. Verse 32, chapter, this Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. By the way, that word witness, uh, it, it, it's the Greek word martyr. Uh, our English word martyr comes from a transliteration of that same word. So our martyr is one, first and foremost, that's a witness. We kind of use it in English as a witness that's all the way unto death, right? We usually use the term martyr as someone who's died for their witness, but in the Greek, the word would just be a witness. They didn't have to die for it. They, they may have died some other way, of old age or something, okay? So they were witnesses with us, all right? And then in chapter 3, in verse 15... Peter giving his uh, second sermon here in, in his defense. And in verse 15, You killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. See, he really was raised from the dead. We are witnesses. And then in chapter 4, in verse 20, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. See, that's what a witness does. You know, when we share the gospel, we are witnessing, right? We're giving testimony. We we'll, we'll sometimes use that terminology. And, and, and what are we giving testimony? The things which we have seen and heard. Now, we weren't there at that event, but we have seen... Christian people we've heard them we've heard teaching for the word we've seen changed lives we've seen the Holy Spirit work in changed lives and born again people so we have a testimony of course our own testimony is the primary one we know whereas once I was blind now I see I know I'm changed I know God did something to me right and so that's my testimony no one can refute that someone an unbeliever that doesn't they, they can't refute. They may be able to argue about certain scriptures, but they can't refute the fact that whereas once I was dead, now I'm alive. I'm a testimony to that, see? So that's part of witnessing. And then in chapter 4 still, in verse 33, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So you see, uh, I want to look at one other verse in chapter 5, verse 32. Luke continues this idea because this is an important, this is a theme verse, chapter 1, verse 8, that we're looking at. And we are His witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. So this idea of witnessing, remember that's how the, what the Lord said in verse 8 of chapter 1, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. There's a geographical progression to that witnessing at the end of that verse, isn't there? You notice that? It's going to begin in Jerusalem and expand outward from there. In many believe Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is, is an outline, a verse that outlines the book of Acts, and you could make a very good case for that. Uh, there are different ways to outline the book of Acts, but let's think about that a minute. Now I want to move into... The, the overview that Tim was talking about earlier. In Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 2, 
in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, while they were all with one accord in one place. And the one place they're in is in the upper room that is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 12 and following, right? So they're in Jerusalem. And the, the primary testimony, or the only testimony, I guess we could say, for the apostles at least, in the first uh, early days of the, of the church, is in Jerusalem, and that will continue all the way through to chapter 7. Right? You have Peter's message in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and then you have, secondly, a message from Peter and John in chapter 3, after the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate. And then third, you have a message from all of the twelve. And, of course, after the, the message that Peter and John give, they're giving a warning not to preach in the Lord's name. They continue to do that. They weren't really in prison for very long on that one. They were just warned. They go back out and continue the ministry. And then in uh, chapter 4... It happens again that, that all of the twelve are now testifying and they get uh, they get arrested for it and, and they get beaten at the end of verse uh, chapter 5. Uh, they, were beaten, they were beaten and they commanded them they should not speak in the name. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Right. So that's the three times. Peter, Peter and John, and then Peter with the with all of the twelve. And then and we at the end of chapter well before uh, the message was from Stephen, Luke gives in chapter six, verse seven, a summary verse of the testimony. To me this is amazing too when you think about it. The Lord had given three and a half years of miracles and testimony of who he was to Israel, right? He had taught them, his mighty works validated who he, who he said he was, and his message, and they still crucified him. And in the grace of God, after his ascension, he sends now his apostles, first and foremost, to the very people who crucified him. And they spend the first few years of their public ministry in the church testifying to Israel. Now that is long-suffering of the Lord, isn't it? Patience. His patience. He and, and you say, well, why would he do that? And, and of course, the whole event of God becoming a man and walking amongst human beings and, you know, looking like, looking like one of us God knows that's going to be a hard thing for people to digest. Even for Israel, who had the covenants of promise and should have been looking for them. So to me, it's an excuse me, amazing testimony to His grace that He would spend any more time with them, with the people who crucified Him. He sends the apostles, and the apostles have to endure persecution from these religious leaders. But they come right out and they tell Him, You killed! The Prince of Life. You crucified him with your very own hands. You know, Peter tells him. And so he's very direct with them. Uh, but there does come a time when we see, is there any result? Is there any fruit to the ministry that they had there in Jerusalem? 
Well, Luke gives us this one statement in verse 7 of chapter 6. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Well, we've seen that already in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, right? When you went from 2,000 and then 5,000. But here, look what he says. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. To me, that's, that's staggering. In other words, the priests would have been part of the religious leadership that was primarily responsible for crucifying the Lord. And yet, many of them believed. So that, was it worth it for the Lord to spend time through the apostles to patiently give the message again to these religious leaders? Yeah, I would say it, it was. It bore fruit, didn't it? And then in the next verse, in verse 8 of chapter 6, we begin, Stephen, full of faith and power, we begin to see this record about Stephen, and we're introduced to this, this other group of, of Jews called the Synagogue of the Freedmen, of which Paul was probably, he was Saul here, Saul was probably a part of this group. You say, how do you know that? Well, because it tells us that there were those there from Cilicia and Asia, and Paul was from Cilicia, right? Welcome. <laughs> Come in. And so then we have the fourth and final recorded message. These are the ones that Luke has cho chosen to record. I'm sure there were more of them. This is selective history, right? We've said that when we talk about biblical history. It's selective history. It's not every little event that happened. It's only he's picking out certain things as he's led by the Holy Spirit to record them. Luke is. He has these eyewitnesses he's consulting, he told us. And, and he's putting this together, he's stringing it together. And all of chapter 7 is this long message given by Stephen again to Israel. And all of it, refer, going all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, our forefather Abraham takes him through Moses. And to me, it's fascinating. Peter, in his first message in chapter 2, his, the first prophet that he quotes from is whom? I mentioned him earlier. I know we didn't read it. Joel, right? Joel chapter 2. But what's the prophet that Amos... Um, I just gave it away. <laughs> what's the prophet that Stephen uses? Well, he uses Amos there, beginning in verse 42. Chapter 7 and verse 42. That's right. And so to me, that's interesting how the Lord guides these two individuals in, in teaching the message of the gospel to the Jews. And Stephen, Stephen's message, remember Paul says in Romans 1.16 that, that the gospel must go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And that's because, not because God has favorites, because the Bible tells us there's no partiality with God, right? He's not partial toward any group, but because... God, if we can put it this way, made his, he felt it was his responsibility because of the covenants of promise to take the message to the Jew first. And that continues to be a theme all the way through the book of Acts, doesn't it? But, but as far as the church, the record, of the detailed record anyway, of the church in Jerusalem, it ends really here with chapter 7 with Stephen. 
That's interesting. In the last chapter of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, this this continued idea that that the uh, gospel must go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Paul says in verse 28, Acts 28, 28, Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation has God of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. He had just quoted Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 that the message went to you. The Lord records that in the Gospels, right? He makes reference to Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 that you know, even though they have ears, they don't hear. Even though they have eyes, they don't see. They don't perceive with their hearts as God has hardened their hearts. And in Acts 28, we see that God has hardened the hearts and He says, you won't hear. We're going to the Gentiles. So coming back to Acts chapter 8, chapter 8 then begins, and so I would say chapter 1 through 7 is part 1 of Acts. And the shift begins in, in chapter 8, and we see it's a, it's a re- geographical shift, isn't it? Acts 1.8 told us that it would begin in Jerusalem and then go out to where? Judea and Samaria. And that's exactly what we see happening in chapters 8 through 12. In chapter 8, there was a great persecution broke out against the church that was at Jerusalem. You see that in verse 1? At the time, a great persecution arose against... This is the first great persecution that arises against the church. There have been persecutions of the apostles, but this one's a big one, mega, a great persecution, Luke says. And it was the church at Jerusalem... And they were all scattered throughout the regions of what? What did Acts one eight say they would go to next? He mentions Jerusalem, the church of Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. It would take a little more to get the apostles out of Jerusalem, but eventually they'd get out of Jerusalem too and fulfill Acts one eight. But they're staying back. But others are going out and. Saul, we're told in verse 3, making havoc of the church. And we read about Philip going to the Samaria. And then later in chapter 8, Philip going to the Ethiopian eunuch down south of the Gaza Strip. And, and the gospel is taken to Ethiopia by that Ethiopian eunuch at that time. The church is spread into northern Africa, right? So we see it spreading. It's spreading north, it's spreading south, and it's going to begin to spread westward. Right? And in, in, the, in these chapters, of course, in chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. And you remember we said that there was fruit from the messages that Peter gave in chapter 2. Peter and John gave in chapter 3. Peter and the Twelve gave in chapter 5. There was fruit from those, as we saw in chapter 6, verse 7, right? Many of the priests, as well as many people in Jerusalem, believe. Then we see Stephen's message in chapter 7, right? Was there any fruit from that message for the church in Jerusalem? Not recorded anyway, right? Not recorded as far as people in Jerusalem, because we're told in chapter 8 that the church, there was a great persecution arose. In other words, the religious leaders were emboldened and the Lord allowed that to happen because He wanted it was time to move it out. You see how the Lord is even using the person. He's not bringing the persecution, but He's using it. Sometimes when difficulties happening in an assembly, 
The Lord is going to use it to spread things out, to scatter, to enlarge the tent, as it were. He's got his own purposes, and we sometimes get all focused and get depressed and worried about it. But there was one big piece of fruit that resulted from Stephen's ministry that is the part three of Acts, his detailed ministry is recorded, and that's beginning in chapter 13 all the way to chapter 28, and that would be the ministry of Saul of Tarsus, whose name becomes Paul. You say, well, how do you know that he is fruit from Stephen's ministry? Well, because he says it himself in chapter 22 of Acts. And I think you want to see this with your own eyes. In Acts chapter 22, in the second of three times that Paul gives his testimony. In chapter 22, he says in verse 20, And when the blood of your martyr... This is Paul speaking to the Lord Jesus. The Lord has commissioned him and he's recounting that here and he said Lord and I'll start at verse 19 so I said Lord they know that in every synagogue I imprison and beat those who believe on you this was Paul's testimony and when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him what Paul's telling us here is he never forgot that, did he? Because when he gives this account in Acts 22, this is in his final trip to Jerusalem, just before he's sent, remember, under arrest to Rome. So this is after probably close to 30 years after Stephen's martyrdom. You know, 55 years, I mean, 25 years, something like that. After Stephen's martyrdom, he still remembers Acts chapter 7 tells us that they laid their garments at the feet of this one Saul and Saul consented to his death. And then later in chapter 9 we read of Saul's conversion. But here he says, Lord, they know I'm the one that consented to Stephen's death. Paul saw it and it made an impact on him. And of all the apostles, in the book of Acts, most detail is given of the ministry of Paul the Apostle, isn't it? Chapters 13 and 28. And so, going back to uh, that third division, I said chapter 8 through chapter 12. In chapter 12, we have kind of the end of the story of the detail of Peter's ministry. Peter has taken the Gospel to the Gentiles, Peter was the one to bring the gospel to the Jews in chapter 2, and then we have what we call, some call it the Gentile Pentecost, occurs in chapter 10 of the book of Acts. Peter is the one the Lord uses, he could have used any of them, but he uses Peter to take the gospel then to the Gentiles at the household of Cornelius the Centurion. That's in chapters 10 and 11, and then in chapter 12 we have this attempt by King Herod to stop the movement of the church. He, the Lord allows him to kill James, the brother of John, with the sword in verse 2. And then he seizes Peter. Peter is released from the prison. It's interesting to think about. 
the Lord allowed James to be martyred, but he didn't allow Peter to be martyred at this time. His timing for Peter would be different. John would outlive both of them. And again, another testimony to us that each one of us has our own personal calling and our own personal area of service and we shouldn't be competing with one another and we shouldn't be comparing ourselves with one another with regard to our spiritual gifts, our calling to service, and how he wants to use us. We all answer to our own master individually, the Lord, and he will use us. So James could have said, why did you let me live like you let Peter and John live, right? But this was God's purpose in the early church. And so chapter 12 closes out then with the death of Herod. And then in chapter 13, now in the church that was in Antioch. This is Antioch in Syria, right in one of the areas, right near where they're having a big slaughter of protesters today in, in Syria with all the and uh, unrest that's going on in that country today. It's right near it, the ancient city of Antioch. This would be the city that would send out Paul and Barnabas on the missionary journeys, three of them. And, uh, and then that fourth journey of Paul to Jerusalem is recorded in chapters 20 to 28. If you want to think about how to outline uh, chapter 13 to 28, I would divide chapter 13, 14, and 15 together from the initial first missionary journey down through verse 35 of chapter 15. And there's a break that occurs at verse 36. It would have been nice to start chapter 16 here, I think. But anyway, chapter 36 of chapter... Verse 36 of chapter 15 begins the middle section in chapters 13 to 28, and that goes all the way to chapter 20, and concludes with that great ministry in Ephesus. And then in chapter 21, verse 1 through 28, is the third division in chapters 13 to 28. So you can think about five divisions. You want to think through the books. Five divisions. Chapters 1 through 7. Chapters 8 through 12. Chapters 13 to 1535. 1536. To the end of chapter 20. And then, fifthly, 21 to 28. But you're using that as... Uh, the from one eight, right? Jerusalem, Judea, and Yeah, we're using we're using verse 1-8 and also markers that Luke is giving at the at these various individual points. If Luke didn't give us a textual marker at each one of these points, we couldn't use Acts 1-8 as a breakdown of the book because we've got to be able to validate that progression in the book, right? But we can. It is we can validate. I just showed you where those breaks occurred, right? So you can see them with your own eyes. It's a way to think through the book. I would say there are three main sections. And then there are subsections, of course, within those main sections. And those three divisions, you know, 13 to 15, 15 to 20, and 21 to 28, or, or subdivisions within that third part. So the book divides it into three main parts. It helps us to think through the book and, and be able to see then as we look at it in more detail what God is doing. And it ends in chapter 28 with Paul still in Rome and we know from the epistles that Paul was released again. Paul tells us that in Philippians. He tells us that in First and Second Timothy. He's released again and then has further ministry for a few years 
before he's arrested a second time and then martyred, as he records in 2 Timothy chapter 4. But the uttermost parts of the earth would be the, what, the, the Roman Empire? Right. And when it says in other places that the gospel has come unto you as it is in all the world, yeah. it's not all the world that we necessarily right. know today. I think it's primarily the world of the Roman Empire that day. Right. And it's interesting the book of Acts begins in Jerusalem and ends in Rome in chapter 28 right Paul in Rome and then that we follow the, the epistles that the Pauline epistles that follow after that they begin in Rome with Romans and end in Jerusalem with Hebrews <laughs> if you take that Hebrews is written by Paul which I'm fairly certain that's the case so it's kind of interesting that that pattern is there as well. And someone has written a book uh, titled Back to Jerusalem. That, you know, it's interesting. The gospel, there there was, you know, Thomas the Apostle, this is, isn't recorded in, in the Bible, but according to uh, church history, Thomas went east to India, and, and a few of the other apostles went east into Syria, and then maybe up into Parth, where the Parthians and that are in modern Afghanistan, that area too. That's not recorded for us in the Bible. In the Bible, it was to get it to the capital of the Roman Empire, to Rome. I think a reference to Daniel uh, plays into that whole thing too, and what we see in the book of Revelation. But it's interesting, the primary thrust of the gospel continued to move westward. Paul said that after he was at Rome, he wanted to go to Spain, further west, right? And, and it went, the gospel went into Europe and then, then into the Americas because the, the Europeans colonized North, Central, South America. And then many from Europe and the Americas went to the Far East, really more recently, the 16, 17, 1800s. And the, the church that's growing in China today, this brother that wrote the book Back to Jerusalem, is talking about the believers in China. Of course, that's the place where the the most significant growth of the church is happening today. There's no question. Nobody will argue the fact it's in China. And, and it's in huge numbers. And the Chinese believers are saying, we've got to continue to take, finish the circle, take it back to Jerusalem. So for the Chinese believers to take the gospel back to Jerusalem, where do they have to go? They had to go through the hardest area on planet Earth to take the gospel. That what's called the 1040 window where the Arab countries are. Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Jordan. The areas where Christians are persecuted the most severely. There's persecution in China for sure. But these Chinese believers are willing to die for the Lord and go into these areas. They, they go in there and they get jobs and they work and they become a testimony and, and witness to these primarily Muslim Arab people in those countries. And they're, they're saying, let's, go, let's finish the circle. Take it back to Jerusalem. And when we've taken it back to Jerusalem, that'll be when the mission of the church will be completed, perhaps. And the Lord will, will return. All right, just quickly then, let's go back to chapter 1 and just finish out verse 9, 10, and 11 where we started our reading. 
after he's given them their commission in verse 8, Luke records in verse 9, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Alright? So he's taken up and received out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven. I can imagine they're standing there. The Lord whom they had grown so close to. God in the human body. They had grown close to him in his earthly ministry, his public ministry, and now definitely in his glorified body, right? And I mean, they, they were ministering with him as close as we are here in this room. And, and they're watching him go and the, the feelings they must have felt in their heart at that time. They're looking steadfastly. They're not, it's not just a casual look. They're, they're staring as they watch him go up to, into heaven. And behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So the promise of his return is given to him right at the outset, right? Just as you saw him go, he will come in like manner. How did he depart? In a body, right? How will he return to gather out his church? In a body. Only he will not come all the way to the earth. He'll come and we will meet him in the clouds, right? According to 1 Thessalonians 4.17. We will meet him in the clouds. The same cloud, probably the Shekinah glory cloud that Luke is referring to here. Now there's a little bit more information in Luke 24 and we'll close up with that because paralleling this portion there in Acts 1, 9 to 11 in Luke 24, verse 50 to 53 and he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands to bless them so Luke tells us here that he's standing there he doesn't tell us in Acts 1 because he's already told us in Luke 24 he lifts up his hands to bless them and as he's blessing them that's how he, how he departs that's kind of interesting touch to it I think it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven and then this is their response and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem he told them not to depart from Jerusalem returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God so we put those Passages in Luke 24 together with Acts 1, 1 to 11. And that gives us the fuller picture that Luke is trying to describe here of our Lord's commissioning the church, the early church, the 11 and the 120 that were gathered with them. Tomorrow night we'll pick up with what happens after that in chapter 1 and that very important prayer meeting that they have and decision that they make for the replacement of Judas. So any comments or questions? You had mentioned about the, the full circle and it just dawned on me when you said that it ends in China now and it could make its way through the Arab nations which is some violent territory. He goes back to Jerusalem 
and they pass the baton to Jerusalem, who's the last witness in Revelation chapter 7? Yeah, the 144,000, you mean? Yeah. Which are Jews, that's right. So the baton is taken all the way around the world, and it's last passing within, if it pans, will go to Jerusalem, and they'll pick it up and be a witness like there has never been seen before. 144,000, probably over all the earth, there will be two witnesses that will be right there in the land of Jerusalem and Judea, but the 144,000 will probably go out throughout the earth. The church will have been taken out. The Lord always has his witness, doesn't he? Good. Any other? Yes, sir. So in uh, chapter 2, verse 17, um, referring to Joel's prophecy, so it says, it shall come to pass in the last days, it's going to pour out my spirit, and all the flesh and the sons of God in the prophecy. And then, uh, in Joel, of course, it's referring to the end times, right? And Paul says in the last days, so, not Paul, sorry, Peter says in the last days, referring to uh, the period of the last days starting the time of Pentecost, right? And so there's no division, the church church age is not mentioned in Joel, and I mentioned last time that the whole church age was a mystery. Is that, I mean, because later on when you read the verse, it's definitely referring to the last days. But the last days beginning in Peter, Peter, Peter is referring to last days starting at the time of Pentecost. Is that, I mean, just uh, comments on that. Okay, good, good, uh, <laughs> brother. Um, yeah, it, uh, it appears to me that in Joel chapter 2, in this quotation here, that there are two visual events that he refers to, right? He says, he says in verse uh, 17, I will pour out, God says, I will pour out of my spirit, right? And then in verse 19, he says, I will show wonders in heaven. So both those are, as it turns out, visual events. I'm not sure Joel under, understood that detail about the, the uh, tongues of fire and so forth. But but it shall come to pass in the last days, that that word last is, is eschatu, it's eschaton, it's the, it's the, we talk about eschatology, the last days. But the last days, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 will tell us, begin with the church, right? There's the last hour of the church history that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and 4, or somewhere in 2 Timothy 3, I think. But, but here, the last days, we are, we're not just in the last days now, we've been in the last days since the day of Pentecost, like you said. And, and so he, Joel did prophesy of the coming of the Spirit, in this first part, and they shall prophesy. It, it, it's for male and female, sons and daughters. It's for young and old, young men and old. My men servants and maid servants, male and female, I'll pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And of course, we have that here in. We have Philip's daughters, four daughters who prophesy, right? In Acts, so we have that. But what he wrote, the second part of this quotation hasn't occurred yet. So we see here. Like we see in Isaiah 61, where Isaiah in one verse has the day of the Lord's, the acceptable year of the Lord, right next to the day of the Lord, the judgment. Here we see here, beginning in verse 19, I'll show wonders in heaven above and signs of the earth beneath, blood, fire, and smoke. 
which is consistent with what we see in Matthew 24 and what we see in 2 Thessalonians 2, what we see in the book of Revelation for the beginning of the day of the Lord. And you notice he says before, in verse 20, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, that I will show both these things. The outpouring of the Spirit, that's happened at Pentecost. The signs and wonders, that hasn't happened yet, but it will precede the day of the Lord. That's exactly what we see in Matthew 24 and in Revelation. So, Just okay. one more question, because this passage is also mis- misquoted by you know, a lot of the charismatic and Pentecostalists, and they justify their, the whole rise of the tongue under the signs and wonders moment, saying that this is the last day. So, if you can comment on why that would not be so, I mean, it would be great. Okay. Well, if... if the book of Acts ended with chapter 2, or even maybe if it ended in chapter 7, we'd have to agree with them, I think, to some extent. But we see the progression in, in the book of Acts, and then especially in the epistles that follow that, we see the progression that, that prophesying gradually is replaced with teaching. Right? That the prophesying characterized the uh, the growth of the early church they had God had to do that they were starting churches in various areas of the world and there was no copy of the New Testament yet right Paul was beginning to write his letters in the early churches uh, then later on Peter would write some letters the gospels were being written but they weren't being widely circulated there was no printing press of course there was no Xerox machine so they had to hand copy him and so there were very few copies of even any of these records. So how is the church in Thessalonica, the young church in Thessalonica in 51 AD, how are they going to know how it exists as a church? Even if they have just 1 Thessalonians, that's a lot, but they don't have Romans, they don't have 1 Corinthians, they don't have... How are they going to know? Because God would use prophets in the meeting to teach them. He said, well, what did the prophets tell them? Well, the prophets told them exactly what we have here. Nothing more, nothing less. And, uh, if they were true prophets, at least. Because there were false prophets, of course. So, yeah, that's an important point, John, because there's so much confusion in our day. I can remember in the early 80s when I was saved, there was this, this uh, movement called the Full Gospel Fellowship. And they, and, they, and they still go on, yeah, but it was really prominent then. And there were some trying to draw me into it, too. I remember trying to... And they said, you want to be in the full gospel like you didn't get the full gospel unless you spoke in tongues and saw signs and wonders. He said, well, is that true? Validate that from the Bible. And of course, you cannot validate that from the Bible. The teaching in 1 Corinthians, among other places, uh, we see that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that prophecy shall cease. And they will cease when the fullness has come. What will replace prophecy? The fullness of the New Testament, the Apostles' Doctrine. When that's complete, that prophecy and prophecy gradually fades out as the canon of Scripture by 144, Marcion, the first heretic, has put together a canon of the New Testament because he was trying to exclude certain books, but it forced the church, encountering his heresy, to put together the right canon 
And there was the, the canon of the New Testament as we see it today was pretty well formulated by the end of the second century already. And then definitely in the Council of Nicaea, 324, 325. And the same New Testament that we have here from the time of 324, 325, the Council of Nicaea, has been the, what the church has used. There were a lot of other books that claimed to be authentic books that are not. They're pseudepigrapha, they're apocry- New Testament apocryphal books. Some of those are coming into print now because we're in the information age. They're on the computer and the Gospel of Thomas and the Epistle of Judas and all these things and they're false and they're dangerous. And those will probably continue as we move toward the rapture. So yeah, they, you got, we, that's why we study the whole counsel of God, right? And so Pentecostalism as a movement began with the idea, let's go back to Pentecost. We want to go back to and relive Pentecost. But you can't relive Pentecost because Pentecost was a unique moment. It doesn't continue even in the book of Acts. They don't continue every new convert in the book of Acts. Does every new convert speak in tongues? Did the Ethiopian eunuch speak in tongues when he was converted in chapter 8? No. And then you move into the converts in chapter after chapter 13 in Pisidian Antioch and in Bithynia and, uh, and in the Philippi. Did, did they speak in tongues? No. There were certain unique events. And so in our stu- one of the things that's important to study the book of Acts, yes, we see we go to our roots for the early church, but we also have to see that there are uniquenesses that occur in the book of Acts that don't continue because it's a transitional period. You're transitioning from the old covenant. Remember, the temple was still standing. There was a priesthood still offering sacrifices for 40 years, from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. The church and Old Testament Israel overlapped. That's why the book of Hebrews is part of the reason why he's writing that, see? So, by 70 A.D., the temple's destroyed and the temple sacrifices cease. That overlap ceases, although Judaism continues, right? But without the temple and without the priesthood. There's so something significant... Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. There's something significant also about the fact that this was the day of Pentecost and that there would be all of the Jews from all over the known world, right, that were living in various parts of the world because they had to come to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was where the temple was and that's where they were to hold. And so the the purpose, the function of speaking in tongues wasn't an unknown tongue. It was speaking in known tongues because people who were from these various parts actually said, how is it we every man hear these words in our own language, right? Meaning not not Hebrew or uh, Aramaic, but in the language, in their mother tongue, so to speak, right? And so it was practical, it was functional, and uh, it served served a purpose. So I I don't know if we see in Scripture that there are things that happen that have no, they're not practical, they're not functional, and they serve no purpose. God simply does not not work that way. Uh, It's not how things work in His economy. So... I think that's the one thing that we can take away from the day of Pentecost is it served a function and a purpose. One is was evidence of what? The Holy Spirit coming coming to earth. It was evidence of the fact that all of these people from different parts of the world were there and would have been there on that day. They would have had to have been according to... Right. 
So all of those things kind of... And that's the wonder of Scripture, how it, it ties in so perfectly. You know, from Genesis to Revelation, there's nothing missing. Everything, everything meshes so perfectly, and all it takes is uh, attentive eyes and ears and, yeah, and a desire to learn. Preparing Scripture with Scripture. Now, the Holy Spirit didn't come to earth. Uh, in this, He was here because He's eternally present. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent, right? But He came in a particular way. He was poured out on these 120 and baptized them into one body, right? So he, He's like Tim saying, it's signifying that He's doing a new work. He's doing it the church is beginning. And Peter validates that in chapter 11 when he explains to the Jerusalem the Jews in Jerusalem about why he went to Cornelius and why he baptized these Gentiles in that household. He says, he, he said, he describes what happened, of course. And he says in verse 15, and, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of this event, this entity, this organism, the body, the church. It began and it had to have a beginning point, Tim saying, and that's where it occurred. And another thing that's interesting that Tim was alluding to a little bit too, I think, of course, males 20 years old and older were required under the law to come to Jerusalem at three festivals every year, right? Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacle. And usually, if they came, especially if they're coming, you know, some of them are Parthians and Medes, right? They're in that group. They're coming all the way from the area of Iran and Afghanistan by camel or donkey or on foot to Jerusalem. Then, then they would stay, they, when they came for Passover, they would stay on the 50 days in the area for Pentecost. So they've been there during this whole time that the Lord is doing His post-resurrection ministry with the apostles, this, you know, this the population of the city of Jerusalem, they said, would, would swell. It normally was around, I think they estimate, around seventy-five to 100,000, maybe 200,000. And, and it, would, it would suddenly swell to a couple of million during that festival. So they were all there, like Tim saying, at Pentecost. And they heard dialect is really, language dialect is really the, the right translation of that word. They heard that, that the mighty works of God being proclaimed in their own dialect, and they ask the question, hey, aren't these Galileans? How is it then that I hear them proclaiming the mighty works of God in my own dialect? They haven't had any study of any language. They haven't been able to learn my dialect. So it was a miracle that God did to inaugurate the church. And think about it, too. Every one of these people that heard the gospel in their own language, then they left after Pentecost and went back to Medea and, and and Parthia and, and, and some from Rome. You want to know how the church in Rome got started? Paul didn't start that church. Who did? Well, we don't know. But we know there were Romans there at Pentecost. And they went back. So it was a way to spread the gospel message and, and have growth in the church at an extremely rapid pace. Why Paul? Paul said, I speak in tongues more than you all. He was going to all these tribal areas in Asia Minor he didn't know those languages. How's he going to communicate with them? He's speaking in tongues. And why within his lifespan, within 30 years, he's able to take the message throughout the whole 
Roman Empire. So that's a good question. Good time. Any other questions or comments? I don't know. What I think it's worth noting that you, you, you may mention in Luke 24 that the Lord was revealing to him, to, to the disciples, the program that he had for his disciples. Right? He says, uh, Thus it is written, Thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem, right? Yeah. So he told them what part, he was giving them a preview of what he was expecting of them after his departure, that they would take this message of repentance yeah. and preach it to all the nations, right? That's right? And yet, what he didn't want them to do was to go home and say, okay, what's the best strategy for this? And, and come up with a program and focus on a program, right? The focus of these disciples, after the Lord was taken up, he also tells us in Luke 24, they worshipped him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Their focus was on God. They're, they were God-directed in their intents, in their thoughts. They were, they were just taken up with him. And in so doing, right, again, they asked him, is it now, is this the time that you're going to restore the, the kingdom to Israel? He says, it is not for you. All right, so he says, my program for you is not to know times and seasons and all that. That's the Father's authority. But, but what is for you, he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and then you shall be my witnesses, and it will happen. And, and they had no idea how it was going to happen. They could never have tried to orchestrate that, right? Even the tarrying in Jerusalem, they didn't know that it was going to be on Pentecost that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon it. They were in one place. Raising and worshiping God and focused on Him and praying. And while they were there in one accord in that kind of mindset, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And it all just started again. So, and so even now, as we, as we try to think of, you know, bringing the baton to Jerusalem, you know, uh, we, we can get very programmed oriented. We can't. But, but there is, there's great teaching in the book of Acts on practical ministry in the church, too, and how they were dependent on the Holy Spirit. And that's some of what I'll look at, Lord willing, on, on Sunday, I think. And, but one of the areas, one of the great examples of that is, you know, they're depending on the, on the Lord in prayer, just as we should be. When, and they did, they did have a plan. They did, they did work. They, they weren't program-oriented, I agree with you. And we don't want to be that. But, but we also have to have a plan in prayer. And the, and the example is in chapter 15, right? When, uh, when Paul is thinking to go east and the Holy Spirit closes the door. And he's thinking to go south by Phineas, right? And he closes the door. And, and then he hears what's in chapter 16, right? He hears the, uh, the Macedonian call. So he's in prayer and he's active, right? In other words, prayer includes activity. You don't... You know, you can say, well, I'm going to pray about this, and then ten years later we check with the brother, I'm still waiting on the Lord in prayer. No. You know, the Lord directs the ship. The ship that's, that can, you have to be moving for the rudder to guide the ship, right? If it's sitting still, the rudder's not doing any good. That's what I've been you doing. You've got you to have water flowing over that rudder. And, and he will direct us as we move. And it's interesting, it's fascinating uh, to see how he does that. So Paul, he's ready to go this way. And the Lord had to close the door. He would have gone. And, and he knows, and the Lord knows how to communicate that to us. And then he goes this way, and then finally, here he is. He's thinking, Lord, what on? And he, he's thinking, goes to bed that night, and I don't know if he had pizza or what, you know. But uh, 
But he's going to bed that night, and all of a sudden he has this dream, and a man from it come over here and help us. It's good that he had a program, though. Sure, but what, what I was going to say is, you know, like, when, when Peter, before the Lord was arrested, said, you know, even if everyone else denies you, I won't. I'm ready to go to, I'm ready to die for you, right? And it was, it was fully in the intents of his heart to fulfill that, right? But the difference now is, after the beginning of the book of Acts, right? When the Holy Spirit came upon him, he had the power right. to do it. And so it wasn't a dependency now leaning upon his conceived ideas and his desires and his own ability to try to fulfill that. His, his trust wasn't in that, right? He, he, because his focus was the Lord and his, he was leaning on the Lord, then the power of the Holy Spirit, he was a different person. Right? Oh, yeah. And another thing about planning, too, it, it appears that, that there's a definite, definite plan in how Paul does his ministry. To, to for maximum effectiveness. You notice he goes to Corinth. Now you say, did he choose that or did the Holy Spirit? You know, probably yes. both. You know, both. He knows that Corinth is is a major port city in that day. He knows it's on the China Silk Route. And so people from China, all the way over in China, coming all the way across Asia and into Ephesus, and then from Ephesus they go across the Aegean to Corinth, drag their boats across the Isthmus to go over to Rome. And so all these sailors are coming and back and forth and you have all these people, international community, and so you take the gospel there, boom, and suddenly you've planted all these people are going out and radio and then he goes over to Ephesus and spends a bulk of his time there. Same kind of a thing. And and you make a great case for being in service of the Lord right here in South Florida. Because that's that's exactly what South Florida right. is. Yeah, I mean, Actually, I was thinking I more was like Key West. West. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's part of South Florida. Absolutely. But, but, you know, like the, the universities here in South Florida are the envy of universities around the country because of the international makeup right. of the student bodies here. And they don't know how to reproduce it. They can't. It's, it's just where we are located and what, what, the, the way the world has, has progressed. And the Lord has placed us here, like yes. the Lord has placed all of those places. Yep. And, and, and we see the students coming and they're going back to other other countries and um, the opportunities are around us and so we should be also seeking the Lord and praying to see how he would have us to do that maybe he would have us to devise a program <laughs> to do that or to depend on his power and leading That's right. to see it happen I want to share a comment about programs. I think programs are important. It's important for us to have a plan and a program. Because, you know, before he knew he couldn't go to the South, he had a plan to go to the South. See, if he didn't have a plan to go to the South, he wouldn't have known he couldn't go to the South. And then, you know, so if we don't have a plan, we don't know what we're doing. And we we might as well be completely and totally, you know, like you were saying, sit around, we'll just pray for the Lord to, you know. I mean, have a plan, but be smart enough and wise enough to allow God to alter your plan. <laughs> and, and, and I agree with you. I think that the, prop, the, the, the downfall of our generation in, and I don't want to say Christendom, because that includes the, yeah, those who claim wide. Christ who are not believers, but in genuine Christ-believing congregations is they're falling into the, the, the pitfall of starting with their own plans. You don't serve the program. Right. Yeah, the program serves the Lord. That's good. Right. And so, the and so we, we start the with the Lord and His right. leading and His empowering. But yes, we need to have vision right. and and plan to, re- and to to fulfill the the leading and guiding and gifting that God has placed in our midst. Right. Uh, that's good. Another point that both y'all are bringing out too uh, that's important in Acts one eight about the power is that 
uh, you know, like we're not we're not waiting for Pentecost. We're not gonna we're not having what they used to call tarrying meetings, where they tarry and wait for the Lord to come upon us in power to enable us like they did then. When did we get that power? We got that power the moment we were saved, right? We got the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We were indwelt by Him forever. It's part of it's a characteristic of the new covenant. I meant to bring that out too, and it's ran out of time. But what's happening in Acts chapter one eight is is the new covenant too. And the Lord had said in Luke twenty two, the new covenant in my blood. Hebrews tells us that one of the characteristics of our benefiting from the Lord being the fullness of Judah and Israel, and our being united to Him, is two aspects of the new covenant being fulfilled: the fullness of the Holy Spirit and eternal forgiveness of sins, which they never had either one of those under the old covenant. Thank God for that. Yeah. So we do have the power, and and the key is, like we're all saying, that, that we surrender ourselves, minds, hearts, and wills to that power that's already at work within us. We don't have to ask Him for it. We already have it, but we need to surrender to it. And that's like you're saying, including our programs and plans, and you're saying that too. Uh, but that, to me, is, is fascinating. It's not. I don't. It's not something I have to wait for to happen. The moment I trust Christ, we have that power. We have the power to stand up to any obstacle, any addiction, any mountain that gets in the way. The Lord can take care of it by faith. Brother, can I lean on you to uh, maybe close out our time in a word of prayer and uh, give thanks for the refreshments? Sure. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this privilege to be together and to discuss such. Uh, learn such wonderful things uh, that are, happened at the beginning of the church. Mm-hmm. We do thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit of God, which every believer uh, has. We are sealed by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And we are dwelt by the Spirit. And we thank you for the privilege of be, being filled with the Spirit on a daily basis. So, God, we just bless you for the knowledge of salvation, for your uh, word that gives us guidance in these last days. And just help us to continue to be witnesses in our uh, uh, locale here and reach as many as we can to the Savior. Mm. Uh, and we also thank you as well for the refreshment and the fellowship to follow in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Guys, there's some bean soup. Because I know sometimes we get hungry. Some bean soup out there as well as some tasty things that you'll eat. <laughs>